Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to the podcast. I am so glad that you are joining me for this one. I got to spend the day yesterday at Rome Ranch out here in Texas with some bison. It was a really moving experience being on the land, seeing the regenerative agriculture there. And I got to hunt at night, and then we ate the organs from the deer that I killed that evening. There were just 2.5 miles of cave paintings discovered in the Amazon, and they are full of stories of humans hunting animals. There are exactly zero stories on those cave paintings of humans hunting kale or spinach or plants. Why do we think this is? Because humans have been having at the center of their evolution for millions of years, nose to tail nutrition. So if you need more nose to tail nutrition in your life, I am so blessed, so grateful, so proud to be able to do that through Heart and Soil. You can check us out at heartandsoil.co. We are making grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised desiccated organ supplements to make it so easy for you to get these organs that are hard to access. We just released one that has my favorite two supplement, my favorite two organs, heart and liver in it, and our grass-fed, grass-finished colostrum immunomilk will be out this week. There's actually some pretty intriguing evidence that I've talked about in, in other Controversial Thoughts videos that colostrum may be as beneficial or more beneficial in preventing the flu uh, relative to the flu vaccination. So as we head into the winter in this viral season of craziness, support your immune system, check out colostrum, check out immunomilk, our grass-fed, grass-finished colostrum, um, if you tolerate dairy. So if you guys uh, need more of this in your life, check us out at heartandsoil.co. Our mission there is to help you all reclaim your ancestral birthright to radical health through nose-to-tail nutrition. My guest on this podcast is Frank Von Hippel. He is the brother of Bill Von Hippel, who has been on the podcast previously. And in this episode, Frank and I do a deep dive into the history and science and nuance of chemical use in our country. And it actually, it's this is a more historical conversation than usual, but I really enjoyed it. And my takeaway was essentially that Since the dawn of agriculture, humans have become way too clustered, way too crowded together, and that has resorted in us needing to make synthetic chemicals to exist that are harmful for us, or we've needed to make synthetic chemicals to support our farming because we are doing monocrop agriculture and destroying ecosystems the opposite of regenerative agriculture. So this is a really important podcast. We talk about malaria. We talk about perchlorates in vegetables, especially in California valleys and other places. And I try to get Frank to answer the question of what the cleanest place on earth is. But I think you guys will really get a lot out of this one from a chemical perspective. Knowledge is power. If this one scares you, good. Understand how to live the cleanest you can in our modern world without letting it impact your overall quality of life. I want to thank my sponsors for this episode as well. White Oak Pastures is my homies, whiteoakpastures.com. They are making grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat and organs, and I love them all dearly. Um, They have corn and soy-free chicken. Check those out. Those are at a special request. They did it just for me and you guys and the listeners of this podcast when I was concerned about 
the accumulation of linoleic acid in the fat of those monogastric animals, the chickens. So check out their corn and soy-free chicken. Check out their organs. They have amazing meat. It's some of the best I've ever had. I'm loving the flank steak these days. And as we're getting close to the holidays, get a roast or a tenderloin to share with your family. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. I also want to give a shout out to Belcampo, my regenerative homies in California, doing amazing good work out there, grass feeding, grass finishing, organically raising their cattle in the shadow of the beautiful Mount Shasta. Check them out at belcampo.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off your order. Or if they're running a promo for 20% off, you can use carnivore 10 for 10% off your order. In addition to that, 30% off. I love their suet. They have liver. They have carnivore and keto bundles. Belcampo is doing great work. And together with White Oak Pastures and the folks at Rome Ranch, I think they are all amazing. So please support them as well. I want to give another shout out to Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. My homies who make blue blocking glasses and amazing light bulbs and a blue light device called the Hive, or excuse me, a red light device called the Hive, and a, an amazing sleep mask. They make all kinds of good things to help you manage your exposure to blue light at night. As I am recording this, I am sitting in light provided by my Hive, my red light at night, I don't like blue light at night, wearing my Blue Blocks glasses, and I've got the Jaspers on. They make clear or kind of amber lens, depending what you're going for and what level of protection, but when I go out to restaurants or I go out at night, if I know I'm going to be at somebody's house and it's going to be blue light, I'll throw on my glasses and I look like an erudite scholar or a hipster, and they're just clear lenses. Um, But these guys have done the research really well to understand how to create lenses that block the most blue light possible. Check them out. Blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Carnivore MD is the code for 15% off. And last but not least, this podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. You guys have heard about them before. My goodness, testosterone is dropping. Healthy sperm counts are dropping like stones in the last 40 years by 50%. Hormonal imbalances, reduced testosterone levels. This is commonplace in male health. It is tragic. What is so cool is that you can go to letsgetchecked.com, excuse me, trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd. That's trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd, C-A-R-N-I, carnivore. C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-E-M-D.com. You get it. Try LGC.com, front slash CarnivoreMD, and you can get yourself checked. It's anonymous, it's easy, and it, it's amazing. Um, you, they will deliver your test online, deliver to you in discrete packaging. Next day, deliver, you collect your sample, you send it back to them. They will review your results. You get them in two to five days. You can get five hormonal levels, testosterone, SHBG, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. You'll get a consult uh, that will be reviewed by a physician. A nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. You can discuss it. They also have HSCRP. They have uh, omega fatty acids. I did all of these myself. It was super easy. You can do it from your home. You don't even need a doctor's prescription to do this. You can just get this into your hands. I love that they are democratizing getting your blood work done and knowing what it is because I think all of us, men and women, should be testing our hormones. Men and women should know what their hormonal levels are, but especially guys, know what your testosterone level is and address it. Get to the root cause, but figure it out. So check them out. 
trylgc.com front slash carnivore md and that is spelled again c-a-r-n carn i v-o-r-e m-d carnivore md you get it they're CLIA approved all the data is completely anonymized this is the thing to do it's worth doing check it out you guys um, and I appreciate their support of this podcast. I, like I said, I did it with mine, and it was very revealing. If you appreciate this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. I give away a book every month, a signed copy of the book to somebody that leaves me a review on Apple Podcasts. So go leave me a review. Thank you for doing that. It's how we spread the word of the podcast and how we change the world with animal-based nutrition, which is really going to help so many people lead better lives. So thank you for your review. Thanks for checking out my sponsors. And if you need more nutrition from nose to tail, check us out, hardensoil.co. Listen after the podcast for what is going on with me. Frank, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to have you. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your interest. You know, your brother and I did a podcast many moons ago, and it was an excellent one. So if people want to hear my conversation with Bill Von Hippel, we talked about Neanderthals and Acheulean tools and how hunting animals made us human. And now I'm on with Bill's brother, Frank, who was also recently on Joe Rogan. And we're going to be talking about chemicals and how they've affected us throughout history and really how we mitigate them today. I thought I'd start the discussion, though, with one of the more interesting parts of your conversation on Rogan, which was at the very end, you and Joe were talking about wisdom and this question of whether humans are wiser today than we have been. So I think I'll just ask you that question. And then I think we should ask the corollary question, which is, are we better off today than we have been in the past? But what are your thoughts about humans today? In 2020, are we wiser than we were 300, 600, 700 years ago? And then we'll ask the follow-up question. Yeah, so thanks for that, Paul. I, I don't think we are actually in the sense that if you go back and read the eminent scholars from even a thousand or two thousand years ago, and the kinds of of analytical uh, thinking they were doing and thinking through problems, they didn't have advanced science, of course, but they were able to think through things in a very logical way. And uh, you think back to the ancient Greeks, um, to the origin of mathematics, to the origin of physics, and the and the beginning of the Enlightenment. I don't think that we could do better now than they were doing then with the information that they had at their disposal. So I, I don't think that we're any smarter than we were then. We have a lot more information and that allows us to do things more, uh, more quickly, faster, more productively. I mean, just as an example, the kinds of science that we can do now in my lab and how much we can do in a short period of time would have been completely impossible when I was in graduate school in the 1990s. So we can do things faster, but that doesn't mean that we're wiser. You know, we can access knowledge more readily, but that doesn't mean that we're wiser. And then I guess the follow-up question, which I find myself asking a lot is, and Joe asks this on his podcast too, is, and we can't really know this, are we better off? Are we better off? And these questions will make more sense as we get into this podcast to the listener. Just, I'll put that as a caveat, but I just want to get these at the outset. Are we better off than we were? What do you think? Yeah, I think I could answer that question. But before I do, do you think we're wiser? It all gets back to these definitions of how we think of wisdom. And 
I think that reading your book and considering what I know about history, which admittedly is less than I should, because I, I never liked history growing up. And now the, the older I get, the more I think, oh, it's all history. It's like that saying, if, if man doesn't know the last 300 years of history, then he's living hand to mouth. I think it's Goethe said that. And I just keep thinking, wow, I need to learn more history, which is why historical accounts of chemicals or historical accounts of how much linoleic acid we're eating, like I talked about with Chris Nobi, these are the history podcasts are some of the most fascinating for me. And I think they put it all in perspective. But when I consider what little I know of human history, I don't think we're wiser today. I don't think that we are considering the way that our actions will affect multiple generations in the future. And I'm not sure that people did that so much in the past, but I think that right now we are playing with fire because things are moving at a faster rate, because we have sharper tools, faster tools, stronger tools, the ramifications of wielding these chemical, physical, technological tools is much greater than it has been in the past. And I'm just not sure we're considering the ramifications. I've been thinking about this a lot. So Joe had Tristan I forget his last name, Harris, on his podcast recently. Did you see that one? No. They were talking about this movie, The Social Dilemma. And really the perils of social media were brought to the forefront in that podcast. And that one really made me think about this. I haven't seen the movie, The Social Dilemma, but I've heard about it from friends and I got really into that podcast. But this is just an example of a technological tool that has been wielded by people different from us for the last 10 to 20 years that has inexorably shaped human consciousness and behavior, that's a powerful tool that really isn't being used with a whole lot of wisdom. And I just can't see, I don't see things going in the right direction, whatever that is. I see humans becoming more and more unhealthy. So less and less healthy and less and less happy. And again, those are very difficult objective measures to, to quantify. But if I'm using those as my metrics, I think we're, I think we're not wiser than we were. And, and I've answered my own question. I don't think we're happier than we were either. I think we're actually going backwards in some ways, trading material comforts and, and speed of interaction for uh, human separation and um, a lot of insidious chronic health issues that Western medicine is ill-equipped to deal with. It's this, it's this Faustian bargain. So what do you think? Are we happier? Yeah. Are we better off? So I would like to answer that question, but just going back to your your point a minute ago about social media, I think if you take examples of that in new technological innovations, whether it's social media or nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, uh, the chemicals that I deal with in my book, there's so many examples like this where the tools are so powerful, they they have the ability, in some cases, like with nuclear weapons, to literally destroy all of civilization, and we don't have the wisdom for for dealing with that, as we know, because we had several very close calls, including almost accidental nuclear wars during the Cold War. So I, I, that worries me a lot that, that the technology has surpassed our ability as humans to really deal with it wisely. Uh, but going to your question about whether we're better off, there are a couple of fundamental ways that we definitely are better off. And so, and I, I mean a couple, <laughs> two. Um, <laughs> so one is we no longer face widespread famine. And up until, up until really the Green Revolution, which began with, with Haber's ability to synthesize ammonium fertilizer by taking nitrogen out of the atmosphere and continued through with um, some, some really powerful chemicals in agriculture, up until that point in the early 20th century, we as humanity faced famine regularly where millions of people would die. And so that's an area where uh, 
we really, today, the only time we have famine, it's because of a breakdown in society, because of a civil war, uh, because of people excluding food from other people. It's not, it's not lack of ability to grow food. And then the second area we're better off, which is even more important, is with infectious diseases. Because up until the ability to both prevent infectious diseases with chemistry and the ability to treat them with medicine, uh, with things like antibiotics for bubonic plague, for example, uh, you could expect that probably half of your kids would die. And so that's it's hard to be secure and happy when you, you, you're expecting half your kids are going to die. It's just, it's such a horrible situation that those are two, two places where um, in, with infectious diseases and with, with hunger, where uh, we are vastly better off than we were even at the beginning of the 1900s. And I want to get into this. I, I, I'm, I think maybe this is a good segue to the, the story of, of, of Fritz Haber and the nitrogen extraction for these fertilizers. This is a great jumping off point because this is a fascinating part of human history and I'll let you tell it. But I think of it as also this corner that we backed ourselves into, that the fact that we need these synthetic fertilizers is some indication that we did too much monocropping and the soil became infertile without adding nitrogen back to it. And perhaps after you tell us the story of the nitrogen fertilizers, and, and how this led to other potentially damaging chemicals, we can loop back into regenerative agriculture discussions. But the famine question is an interesting one. So let's circle back to that. But but how did this happen? Because I heard you talk about this previously on other podcasts that this this ability to isolate nitrogen and use it as fertile, that was a big, that was a big step for humans. And it remains to be seen whether that was a step forward or a step sideways or a step back, but it was a big step for us. So what happened there? Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. And I would say it we have to consider it a step forward in the sense that without it, we would have had hundreds of millions of people starving to death in the 20th century. So there's just no way to think that's a good thing. Um, but up until just before World War I, most of the world's agriculture relied upon caliche deposits mined in Chile for fertilizer, for nitrogen. And that meant that these deposits had to be mined, they had to be shipped to wherever you're doing the farming and then applied. The, the situation was so dire that farmers were even using uh, human remains from battlefields as fertilizer in parts of Europe. And so, um, so Fritz Haber and Walter Nernst were the two greatest physical chemists in the world uh, just before World War I. And they were competing to be the first to be able to economically extract nitrogen from the atmosphere. You know, the atmosphere is about 80% nitrogen. And, and, uh, but it's, it, it was unknown how to how to extract it and in order to make artificial fertilizers. And Haber got there first. And basically both Haber and Nernst were playing around with extremely high pressure and temperature to be able to extract nitrogen from the atmosphere. The reason Haber got there first is that he was brilliant at developing catalysts, which are, are chemicals that facilitate a reaction without being consumed in the reaction. So he got there first and, and managed to, uh, to very efficiently extract nitrogen from the atmosphere uh, just before World War I. And the reason it's important that it happened just before World War I is you also need nitrates for explosives, for, for rockets, for things like that. Germany would not have been able to last as long as they did in World War I, probably not longer than six months without this ability to artificially make nitrates. 
uh, as well as without the ability to fertilize their crops because of the intensive need for crops during during war. So that's the backstory to it. And uh, that initiated the Green Revolution, which was then, of course, facilitated also by chemical pesticides, by uh, by synthetic pesticides used to, to uh, enhance crop production. And from there, didn't Haber then go on to develop some chemicals that were used in very negative ways? Or there, there's there's more to the story, right? This was just the beginning of this process of, of, of using this chemical. So they isolate nitrogen from the atmosphere. They use it for fertilizer for crops. But what's the next part of the story? Yeah, so that's where it gets really interesting because here Haber actually won the Nobel Prize for this. It was awarded right after World War One because he he his his chemical innovation prevented millions of people from starving to death. On the other hand, he also developed Germany's chemical weapons during World War One, and both developed and initiated on the battlefield the first weapon of mass destruction, which was the chlorine gas attacks against the Allied forces in Belgium at at early in World War One, and that made World War One a chemical war. So Germany was a signatory to the ban on the use of chemical weapons, but they violated it because they were basically trapped in the stalemate, and they thought this would be a way to break through. And once they initiated chemical warfare, then the the uh, Allied powers retaliated, and by the end of World War One, one quarter of all artillery flying through over these trenches had chemical weapons in it, which is just incredible that that was the extent of, of the, it was a chemical war is what it became. Uh, so he initiated the first weapon of mass destruction. And it's not that he was the first one to try. Actually, the Russians and the French tried before Germany did, but they failed. He was the first one to successfully initiate chemical warfare and, uh, and, a, and a weapon of mass destruction. And then after World War One, he he was hated throughout the world for this outside of Germany, and he wanted to rehabilitate himself. So he did two things. One is he uh, he devoted himself to public health by developing uh, pesticides that could be used to kill pests such as the body louse vector typhus that killed millions of people. And uh, he also tried to extract gold from the world's oceans to pay Germany's reparations for World War I. And that was a failure. He was able to extract gold, but not economically. Um, the, the, the very sad part about his public health efforts is the pesticide that he developed in his lab for uh, killing the body louse in order to prevent uh, outbreaks of typhus and other uh, lice-borne diseases uh, was a hydrocyanic acid pesticide that then became the chemical Zyklon B that the Nazis used to exterminate the Jews and others in Nazi Germany and in their conquered territories. Yeah, that was some of Haber's relatives because Haber was Jewish and he lost relatives to this chemical that he had helped to develop as a public health tool. Yeah, that was a particularly sort of um, uh, striking portion of the book, The Chemical Age, that you've written that describes that story. And I thought, oh man, this is... This is heavy stuff, but if we if we go back a little bit, so there are two points I want to make there, and the first is that hydrocyanic acid is actually found in some plants, and I've mentioned this before, so I'll just connect this to a far off point for my listeners that that in cassava there is linamarin and linamarase, 
and those combine to form hydrocyanic acid, which is why cassava is toxic to humans. And that in order to be used in South America, this root, this plant food that plants don't really want to get eaten has to be ground and dried to allow this volatile hydrocyanic acid to evaporate. So I thought that was interesting to see that the similarity that hydrocyanic acid actually is found in some foods when they are consumed, only when you eat the root. Um, in some ways, that's analogous to what happens with sulforaphane coming from the consumption of plants that contain uh, glucosinolates, uh, like glucoraphanin, combining with myrosinase to make isothiocyanates. But I just want to back up one more step and just really clarify this, because in my mind, I'm thinking about this, and it gets to be a little bit of a difficult philosophical position. In, in the early 1920s, what you said, what we're looking at was people were farming in Chile for nitrogen because they couldn't grow crops anymore. Because we basically at that point in human history grown so many monocrops, right? Because we're talking about growing crops. We're not talking about growing animals. People could still graze animals on the land. But at this point in our history, by growing things in the ground, this is what I've referred to in the past as the cult of the seed. These are words from Jared Diamond. By doing this monocrop agriculture, we have this unidirectional system of nutrient flow. And at that point, even in the 1920s, we were desperate to put nutrients and minerals back in the soil. It's crazy to think that we were using dead bodies from the battlefield for their nitrogen. And this is the way it happens in the center of the country or in the plains and any grassland ecosystem is animals die on the land. They poop and pee on the land, but they also die on the land and return the nutrients. Um, I think that most of us in 2020 would look back and say, yes, it's good that hundreds of millions of people didn't die from famine, but I just want to take a step back and, and have us all ask the questions around this. Um, at what point do we, does the human population on this earth exceed the carrying capacity of the earth? Do you ever think about that? Yeah, of course. I actually, I've been teaching conservation biology for 25 years. And yeah. so this is a fundamental question in that. And one of the extraordinary things about nitrogen fixation, it, it may be, in my mind, the most amazing statistic of anything to do with human change on this planet is humanity fixes more nitrogen from the atmosphere than all of nature does. So if you take the Hopper-Bosch process for fixing nitrogen for fertilizers and you add to that, the fixation of nitrogen with our legume crops, crops that, that um, pull their own nitrogen out, but it's for, for our agriculture. Together, that's more nitrogen being removed from the atmosphere than all of nature. That's extraordinary, you know, that we have had that kind of an impact on a, on a global biogeochemical process. Uh, and there's plenty of other stats like a similar level of scale. For example, we have we have modified half of the Earth's terrestrial system for human ecosystems, for forestry, for farming, for cities, over half of the landmass. That's incredible. So there's no doubt that we've exceeded the, the if if you took the average consumption level of you or me or anyone else in a developed country, and you then had every living person on the planet consume at the level that we're consuming, we're well beyond this planet's carrying capacity. So we have a serious problem in terms of, of both population size and growth and consumption of resources uh, that goes to all of, We're not living sustainably. There's no question about it. Uh, so there are separate questions here. It's great that we didn't have hundreds of millions of people die from starvation, but we are vastly outstripping the Earth's ability, the way we live right now, to sustain ourselves. And I find that to be a real philosophical conundrum as a human living in 2020 in a very privileged way. And I will admit that. I live in Austin, Texas. I have a roof over my head. I can hunt animals here. I'm not in danger of starvation. 
one of the nice things about my diet is I don't have to grow much in the ground, so I don't need many nitrogen fertilizers. But even having access to animals is something that not all 7 billion on this people on this planet could do if we all decided to start living like our hunter-gatherer ancestors. So I love I love thinking about this from this perspective and going back about 15 to 20,000 years to this point of the Neolithic revolution. And I've spoken about this and Jared Diamond has spoken about this, this, this inflection point, at least apparent inflection point in, in the anthropologic record where we started to become farmers. And as I understand the, the, the conceptualization here, this was a real shift in the amount of humans that could live in a certain space. And Jared Diamond tells this story very well throughout his books, Collapse, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and others, that once we started farming and using this cult of the seed, he wrote a great essay called The Worst Mistake in Human History, which I referenced in my book, The Carnivore Code, that once we started farming on the land, it suddenly, and you you can speak to this better than I can as a conservation biologist, it suddenly became easy for us to outstrip the land. More humans could live by the crops that were grown on a plot of land than could normally live there if you are existing within an ecosystem of hunting and gathering. And so his hypothesis was that that means you're going to go over to the tribe next to you and conquer them to get their land. And then what happens is the tribe of 200 becomes 300, becomes 450, becomes 600. And it's this kind of impossible race to the finish line. Have you thought about those ideas that the way that this Neolithic transition might have influenced the way that we exist on the earth? Do you think that was really the beginning of the end for us as humans and the 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 sort of the inescapable path toward exceeding the carrying capacity of the earth? Yeah, so I don't think it's actually inescapable, but the the path we're on right now is is not sustainable. I think there are ways to to become sustainable. And and it also varies tremendously geographically. And I know Jared Diamond has talked about this as well. But for example, if you live in a, in a desert ecosystem, if you go to North Africa, the Sahara Desert, uh, much of the Middle East, the way that people survived there for so long and flourished there for so long is that they had mobile domestic animals that could harvest the rains where they occurred. So they would move around with their animals in order for the animals to graze where there was sufficient forage because rains are quite localized in desert environments. If you look at the United States where early colonial days and shortly after the founding of the United States, the farming was along the Eastern seaboard. And, you know, it's okay farming out there. It's not great. And what happened is that once the Midwest opened up, pretty much all the agriculture went to the Midwest. So New England was completely deforested. It was all farmed. Now it's all forest. And the reason why it's so much better farming in the Midwest is those are less deposited soils. So wind deposited soils, they're gra natural grasslands. And in grasslands, almost all of the biomass is below the soil. Very little is above the soil, which means that you have a huge buildup of nutrients occurring naturally through the accumulation of biomass. That doesn't happen in the same way in, in forested landscapes. So how you can use the land varies a great deal by where you are. I, I do a lot of work now on contaminants down in the US-Mexico border region. And these are desert environments where they're growing cotton and growing melons and growing these water intensive crops. And they can do this because the Colorado River recharges the groundwater there and they're pumping that out. But that also tells you something about the way we view the earth and how, how we are living on it. You can't live the same way everywhere and be sustainable. It's not sustainable to grow cotton in, in Southern Arizona. So these are the kinds of things that we're doing that are, that are uh, we need to be changing the way we do things, but we have to change the way we do things in a place-based way. So I'm from Alaska, grew up in 
born and raised there, lived there until four years ago. And the way you can't really do agriculture in Alaska, there's a three month growing season. We had a farm when I was a kid, amazing soils, uh, plants grow all day and all night in the summer because the sun's up almost all the time, but you have a three month growing season. So the way you have to do things there, we live largely, uh, you know, in terms of catching fish and eating a lot of game meat, that kind of thing. And you can't do that if you live in New York City. So we have to think in a place-based way on how we can be sustainable. Are you familiar with the work of Daniel Quinn and the book Ishmael? So I've not read it. So many people have recommended that book to me and I've never read it. Basically what I'm thinking of here is just, and I haven't read it in many years, I'm just thinking of his idea. And a lot of these ideas are very philosophically challenging. I will admit that. So all of you guys listening, I'm just kind of asking these questions and and I don't think we know where they will lead, but it's interesting to, to be explorers philosophically. He asks this question in Ishmael, which is if you have a population and you continue to feed the population, the population will expand beyond beyond the the resources they have. And he, he's in the, in the most empathetic and the most compassionate way, he kind of suggests maybe famine is normal for humans and that famine happens when we exceed the carrying capacity of an environment. And I think that's, that's just the kind of stuff that I think about as we're describing um, the use of fertilizers to keep the land fertile. And there are so many signals that we've really not done a conservation or wise approach to the way we're managing the land, something akin to the way the Native Americans would have thought of without overly idealizing them or overly romanticizing them. It's just, there are so many signals that we've, we are, like you say so eloquently, we are not using the land properly. We are not thinking of the earth as a resource. We are thinking of the earth as just something that we can strip mine and use. And we're forgetting that there's an expiration date if we don't let it renew and, and have some sort of conservation-based practices. And so I just can't help but think, are we just headed for this cliff in a big way? There are so many signals already. And, you know, nobody wants to see their family starve, but I don't, I don't see a way out. And I don't know how we're going to do it unless the, I think that the solutions that are being proffered now are synthetic meats and lab grown food and terraforming Mars, which sound horrible to me. I'll, I'll stop this podcast in a moment and you'll, fi- you'll never find me. I'll be in the woods in Idaho and I'll just be hunting deer and running around in deer skins for the rest of my life. I just, I, I don't see a way out, but, but I'm curious for your perspective there. Yeah. So I, I think that um, those examples you've given of unsustainable practices are horrible, but there are ways out. And so I can give you a few examples. When when I was a kid, the average woman in Latin America had something like six children. And now the average is just over two. And it's not that they're much wealthier. They do have better economies there now, and that helps. But having, having better education and better opportunities for women makes a massive difference. So they didn't change their religion. They were mostly Catholic in the 60s and 70s. They're still mostly Catholic. And yet... They're now having basically a sustainable number of children in most of Latin America. And uh, and that's because women have been much better educated and uh, allowed into the workforce and the the economies have improved. Generally around the world, when you see economic conditions improving so that kids become no longer necessary for, uh, for just scratching a living for the family, but rather become an economic burden in the sense that, that you can raise enough resources without the kids, families have fewer kids. When women get better educated, families have fewer kids. Access to birth control is another huge one. If you compare India and Pakistan, 
I'm sorry, uh, Bang Bangladesh and Pakistan, which were both part of India during the colonial days. And then when, when uh, the partition happened and, and uh, Britain pulled out, uh, the Muslim parts of the country split off from India and then Bangladesh and Pakistan separated from each other. So they really started from kind of the same base, both Muslim from the same poor uh, kind of background. And um, yet Bangladesh has been vastly more successful at population control than Pakistan has been. And that's been through their birth control efforts, which have not occurred in Pakistan. So you can have a common culture, a common economic condition and have one place be way more successful than another place. Um, even things like in the Indian subcontinent where they have in, in places like India and Bangladesh, where the government has subsidized condoms by just a couple of cents per condom, it can make a huge difference in birth control. So there's simple practical things that can be done that actually go a long way in reducing population growth and have been done effectively in many parts of the world. In other parts of the world, they haven't been done and they're a disaster now where they're vastly outstripping their resources. And those resources are just, yeah, they're vanishing before our eyes. It's very, it's interesting to think what's going to happen in two or three generations. Now, the other thing that that I think we should really talk about is is the chemical burden on this earth. Because we gave one example of the nitrogen coming out of the atmosphere for fertilizer. That sounds like a good thing. The hydrocyanic acid got used for Cyclone B, this tragedy of the Holocaust. But there are so many different chemicals that you discuss in this book. There's DDT. There's, there's so many chemicals. There's the history of Rachel Carson and Silent Spring and the pesticides. And I, I think that my audience will really be interested to hear about the history of use of pesticides and the development of those pesticides. And then I think we should talk about your perspectives on the burden of pesticide use in the, on the planet today with the ultimate question being, are there things, what can we do to avoid them? But let's get to that eventually. But tell us a little bit about the history of pesticide use, where these things came from, because we kind of started with that in the 1920s and 1930s. And, and then where we are today with things like glyphosate, 2,4-D, which were used in Agent Orange and all these other kind of sure. chemicals that many people are very afraid of, perhaps I would say rightly so. Sure. Yeah. So it's a really interesting history. And that's that's a lot of the focus of my book, The Chemical Age, is about this history of the interplay between development of pesticides, development of chemical weapons, the fight against pandemics, the fight against famine, that kind of thing. And if we go back to um, prior to the 1880s, all that was available to the farmer to battle the constant pests the farmer faced uh, were products like tobacco, um, some of the some of the metals like um, arsenic and lead, um, uh, the uh, chrysanthemum flower, uh, which produces the pyrethroids that are effective against mosquitoes and other uh, some other kinds of flies. So there were just a limited number of things that they, they weren't produced in any kind of commercial way. It was just haphazard where some people had access to these things. Um, in the 1880s, a French scientist named Millardet developed the first modern pesticide. And it was, it was to battle the water mold that was, that was destroying the vineyards of France at the time, but also was effective against the potato blight pathogen, Phytophthora infestans, which uh, is another water mold that caused the, that was the proximate cause of the, of the uh, Irish potato famine. And, um, and that, that became commercialized very quickly. And so we had the first pesticide available for sale uh, in a commercial way in the 1880s with with um, Bordeaux mixture, it was called. It was a copper sulfate solution. And, um, and then between then and World War I, 
pretty much all of the uh, commercial pesticides that were available were based on on metals, toxic metals. People call heavy metals. We now refer to them as toxic metals. And uh, that would be copper, lead, mercury, arsenic, which is a metalloid. Um, and there are a variety of, of formulations. They were used by the by the millions of, of tons around the world during that time. And the problem with these chemicals is that they were often still residue on the food. And if consumers didn't carefully wash their food, they could get poisoned. So there were many cases of lethal lead poisonings, for example, from people eating apples that had lead arsenate on them that they didn't wash. And so the lead arsenate was, was, was used in the orchards. Um, the first development of synthetic organic, organic mean carbon-based um, pesticides for use in, uh, in pesticide formulations really started to happen around the time of World War I and really was co-developed with chemical weapons. So we were talking, for example, before about hydrocyanic acid. Hydrocyanic acid was used before World War I in, in fruit orchards as, a, as an insecticide. And, uh, but then it became heavily used in chemical weapons during World War I. It was quite an effective chemical weapon. It was one of the most used chemical weapons of World War I. And, um, but many of the chemical weapons discovered in World War I were then tested for their efficacy as insecticides and found it to be quite effective. And they became widespread after World War I in their use. And um, so that kind of gets us up to World War II. So by the time we get, got to World War II, we had some synthetic organic uh, pesticides, some of which were derived from chemical weapons. Some were pesticide first and then used as chemical weapons. And we had these heavy metal-based um, chemicals. And so we could talk about the World War II story in a minute, but that I don't know if you have any uh, questions about that part of the history first. For sure. Yeah. I think, yeah. Tell us the World War II story. Well, I mean, I think that history is fascinating. And then let's move on to World War II. Sure. So what happened during World War II was a massive increase in the development of organic pesticides, organic chemicals to be used as pesticides, not to be confused with organic agriculture. We're talking about toxic synthetic chemicals with an organic structure. and um, Which means carbon-based, as we carbon said. Carbon-based, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so there were two major families of, of um, pesticides developed during World War II. One of those are the organochlorine compounds to which DDT belongs. And that was first synthesized actually in the late 1800s, but the chemist who synthesized it did not realize it was insecticidal. Paul Mueller of Swiss Chemist discovered its insecticidal properties in 1939. And his company relayed that discovery to both the Nazis and the Allied powers. They relate because Switzerland was a neutral, a neutral country. And the Nazis ignored the discovery because they were quite invested in their hydrocyanic acid technology for fighting uh, the body valves for typhus, which is what they were considering DDT at the time. Um, but the United States actively began investigating DDT and they found that it was not only effective against the body valves, it was effective against malarial and yellow fever carrying mosquitoes. It was effective against a lot of other uh, pests that carry deadly diseases. So they viewed this as an incredibly important tool for uh, the American uh, war effort and the British war effort in the Pacific theater and the North African theater and in the European theater where malaria and then uh, other diseases like in the, in the Pacific theater, yellow fever were quite a huge problem for, for the power, for the, for the allied powers. Um, the other major chemical class that was developed during World War II 
are the organophosphate chemicals. And these were synthesized, they were discovered and synthesized by a Nazi chemist named Schrader, who realized as he was looking, he was trying to find effective insecticides to help with crop production during the war. And he, he realized that the chemical class he discovered was too toxic to be used in insecticides. So he relayed the discovery to the, uh, basically the Nazi uh, uh, chemical warfare division. And they, they realized that they had the first effective nerve, nerve agent on their hand. It was called Tabun, T-A-B-U-N. Um, it was the most toxic chemical weapon ever developed. And about a year later, Schrader uh, synthesized sarin, which more people have heard of than Tabun. Sarin is 10 times more toxic than sarin. Um, and the Nazis started developing that as well. And then a couple years later, the last year of the war, another Nazi scientist working on this series of chemicals, organophosphates, developed somin, which is far more toxic than sarin. And that became the most toxic chemical weapon ever developed. Um, and there's a fascinating history about how all of this grew into the Cold War because the the Soviets captured the Soman facilities and they adopted Soman as their first chemical weapon they developed. The American and British forces captured the Sarin facilities and the Tabin facilities, and they developed those as effective chemical weapons for the West. Um, the Soviets later developed an even more powerful class of chemical weapons, and the, and the British and Americans developed the VX uh, chemical class, which uh, came out of these organophosphates. Uh, but Schrader himself went on after the war to develop organophosphates into incredibly effective insecticides, and they became the most used insecticides in the world um, uh, by the 1990s. And essentially, they replaced the organochlorine insecticides because the organochlorine pesticides like DDT were quite safe to handle. Um, but the problem with them is they're highly persistent in the environment. They were wiping out wildlife throughout the world. They're the reason why the bald eagle and the peregrine falcon went on the endangered species list in the United States. And the same thing happened all over the world. Um, whereas the organophosphate chemicals break down in the environment in a matter of months, not decades. And so for the environmental costs, we switched over to the organophosphates. But this also created a problem. And it's kind of this theme with everything we talk about is that there's huge problems created. One of the problems created by the organophosphate chemicals is they're far more toxic to use than organochlorines. And who are the people spraying these? They're the migrant farm workers from Mexico and other parts of Latin America that we allow into our country to grow our crops. And they, they at least up until a couple of decades ago, were not given proper protective equipment. They were using these incredibly toxic chemicals that started out as nerve agent chemical weapons uh, to grow our crops. So we traded off um, the safety of the consumer for the safety of, of the farm worker. And this is what led to the Cesar Chavez uh, boycott in the 1980s, you may remember, with the great boycott. That was about farm worker safety over having to use these incredibly toxic chemicals with insufficient protection. So there's a million issues wrapped up in this. I don't know which way to go with this, but it's complicated and it's, it's difficult. It's definitely a Gordian knot of sorts. And we have really tied ourselves uh, into, into knots with all of these chemicals over the years in order to produce enough food to feed all the people on the planet. And I think that the, the, the very clear question that comes out of all of this is, can we avoid this with organic food? This is the reason to eat organic plants. This is the reason to avoid animals fed grains. And so let's just, you know, before we dive deeper, let's make it very, um, very relevant for the listener. So when people ask me, should I eat grass fed, grass finished meat? 
Is that a good choice? And I say, yes, absolutely. There are certainly those in the, in the space who would say that the nutrients in grass-fed, grass-finished beef are not that much different than those in grain-finished beef. And I actually talked about this when I was on Rogan. But what I have pointed out or tried to point out is that <clears throat> when you're feeding a cow grains, that are sprayed with pesticides, the cow is going to accumulate those pesticides, whether they're fat-soluble pesticides like atrazine or water-soluble pesticides like glyphosate, which I want to talk about, the cows are going to accumulate those. And so as you're suggesting with many of these pesticides, there is some level of bioaccumulation as you go up the food chain. And that that's what was happening with DDT, right? That they would release it and then you know, the, the phytoplankton would have more than the water. And then the fish that would eat the phytoplankton would have more than that. And then the, the animals that would eat the, the fish would have even more. And then species were being, uh, you know, were being destroyed everywhere because of that. And so I think that this is the reason to avoid this in our food chain. And so in, in 2020, if we just make it very relevant for the listener, how do we avoid these pesticides as much as possible? And which ones are we dealing with today? Yeah. So it's a great question. And there's so many different ways to answer this. So with the organochlorine pesticides, they are lipophilic, so they're fat soluble. And this is why they both bioaccumulate and biomagnify. And just to explain what those terms mean, bioaccumulation means that the, the organism, the, the individual, the animal, whatever organism you're looking at, accumulates a higher concentration of that chemical than is found in the environment in which it lives. So, so you could have a chemical that an animal accumulates in its tissue that's toxic, but it's not bioaccumulating. For example, most toxic metals do not bioaccumulate. That is, the animal will have a lower concentration than is in the water they live in and the soil they live in. Um, mercury is an exception to that, and also organotin and organic forms of lead, but all the other toxic metals do not bioaccumulate, even though they're toxic. So something can be toxic and cause a massive health problem without bioaccumulating. But the, the chemicals that bioaccumulate are these fat-soluble chemicals, and they also biomagnify, which means each step along the food web, each trophic level, they accumulate to a higher concentration. And so um, if we take DDT as an example, if um, there is an, uh, uh, an example Rachel Carson talked about in her book published in 1962, Silent Spring, in Clear Lake in California, where DD, DD, a, a derivative of DDT called DDE and DDD was sprayed in this lake. And, um, and the, by the time you get to the fish eating birds, you have the concentration in the birds that's about a million times higher than what's in the water. And that led to the collapse of threatened species of birds. So, um, so that's the problem with the organochlorine pesticides is they're both, um, they're, they're both long lasting, they persist for decades and they are bioaccumulative and toxic. So just to give an example, if you go to California today where most of the DDT use occurred in the United States more than any other state, and you measure the amount of DDT in the soil in, in these farming regions, you'll find higher levels of DDT there than you'll find in agricultural regions of Africa where they're still using it because so much of it was used before it was banned in the United States. So if you started an organic farm in a place like that, you're still gonna have DDT in your crops because it's still there. So yeah, organic is obviously better than conventional agriculture. It's obviously gonna be safer, but it's not the end of the story. You have to know, are there pesticides on this land from before it was organic that are still there? And secondly, is there pesticide drift? So you could have an organic field but it's, it's downwind of conventional agriculture where they're still spraying and it could still have serious levels of contamination with pesticides. So I try to eat organic when I can afford it on crops where, you know, for example, strawberries that have high pesticide residues. Most of us can't afford to get only organic. 
The more organic you can buy, the better, but it's not the end of the story because of these complications. Now, I also want to dig into the fact that some of these pesticides accumulate on the skin of the fruit or the vegetables, and that some actually get incorporated into the fruit and vegetables, and you can't wash them off. So there are differences in these different pesticides, right? And that this is one of the problems, I think, with organic food or with non-organic food is that some of these pesticides are actually incorporated into the, the plants that we're eating. And of course, people listening to this podcast may not be eating a ton of plants, but they may be eating less toxic plants than, than many. But I think that my listeners generally eat less vegetables than, than usual. Um, but there are these two types of pesticides, right? We can't all always wash the pesticides off the plants. That's right. In fact, if we go back to the discovery of the, of the nerve agents, Soman, uh, you know, uh, Sarin, Tabin, uh, to this Nazi scientist Schrader, he's actually the same scientist who discovers so-called systemic uh, pesticides. These are the pesticides that are taken up by the roots of the plant, and then they're delivered throughout the plant by the plant circulatory system. So they're going, they're going through the xylem and the phloem of the plant and going to all the tissues of the plant. And that's what made them such a wonderful insecticide because you don't have to reach every plant, every part of the plant when you're spraying. You don't have to spray underneath the leaf. You don't have to find these nooks and crannies. The plant is delivering it for you. Many modern pesticides that we use are these systemic pesticides that are actually being delivered by the plant itself. So then the question is whether or not you're getting them in the food depends on how long it takes that pesticide to break down in the plant's tissue versus when the plant is harvested. And there are cases of chemicals that break down quickly and the harvest occurs after that where you're not getting the residues of the pesticide. But there's other cases where the, the harvest might occur too early and you are getting uh, residues of that pesticide. So that too is a complex question because it has to do with the behavior of the farmer, which pesticides are they using, um, how quickly they break down, what are the environmental conditions which influence the breakdown, the temperature, the moisture, all of that, the concentration of the pesticide used, and then when is the harvest taking place relative to those questions? Uh, it's such a it's such a such a conundrum. It's such a bugaboo for people. So let's just talk about some of the pesticides that are used today. Now, my impression is that one of the pesticides, one of the chemicals in Agent Orange 24D is still used today. Is that is that true? Yes. Uh, so there's a couple issues with, with Agent Orange, and we should also circle back to what happened with the development of pesticides after uh, World War II. But yeah. um, there's a couple of issues with Agent Orange. So um, one issue was that the process by which they were, they were rushing. So let me just back up. What is Agent Orange? Agent Orange and other agents like Agent Purple and several other agents that were used by the U.S. military in uh, the Vietnam War and in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia are defoliants. So they were designed to do two things. They were designed to defoliate the forests of Vietnam so that Americans and allied forces could see the Viet Cong, physically see them in order to kill them. And they were designed to kill crops, to starve them. So these were really crimes against humanity because we, we, we made most of the people who, were, who starved because of our use of these chemicals were civilians. They were not combatants. And we also destroyed these forests. There, you go there today. I've been to these forests today. They're still in terrible shape because of these chemicals. And the, and um, these are long-lasting chemicals. They'll persist probably another century uh, before they're they're really breaking down, and the forest can really re rehabilitate. Um, but in addition to that, they had high levels of dioxin because they had an inefficient chemical synthesis process to produce Agent Orange. 
And dioxin is a carcinogen. So, uh, and not only is dioxin a carcinogen, but it causes developmental disorders. So there are many children who were, who were in the womb when uh, women were living in these places that were sprayed, who developed uh, malformations, um, severe malformations in their, in their, phys- in their anatomy. And um, if you go to Ho Chi Minh City, what was Saigon, there's actually a city within the city of, of the, the children who are basically my age, who, um, who were born during the Vietnam War, uh, who have these abnormalities. So really horrible things associated with these chemical defoliants. Um, so one of the issues was they had high levels of dioxin, but even once um, the, the chemical process was improved and the chemical companies knew for years about this without doing anything about it, it was only after the American Association for the Advancement of Science sent a team to, to Vietnam. The team was actually led by a mentor of mine I worked for in the 1980s um, named Arthur Westing. And, um, and it was organized by Matthew Meselson. Uh, who I've interviewed on my podcast, and Meselson is incredible. He he discovered fundamental things about DNA, like messenger RNA and restriction enzymes. He should have won a Nobel Prize, but what I interviewed him about was his leadership of the Herbicide Assessment Commission during the Vietnam War. And it was only after these elite scientists went to Vietnam and showed that the forests are getting destroyed, people are starving, these they're they're getting these developmental abnormalities, and it's and it's both because of dioxin and because of the chemicals themselves. So these herbicides uh, actually themselves are toxic to people when we're exposed to them. And only after that did they uh, improve the process so that they would no longer be making dioxin. And then um, uh, uh, we, at the end of the Vietnam War, uh, President Ford signed this ban on the use of herbicidal weapons, essentially, by the United States. And we would only, in the future, use them for things like on our military bases, but not as an agent of war. But there are another example, just like regular chemical weapons of of pesticides being deployed for warfare in just a really horrific way. So yes, these chemicals are still used as herbicides, and um, and they're, they're really quite dangerous. Rachel Carson had a brilliant part of Silent Spring about this, where she talked about these herbicides as a shiny new toy that the the government people and the pesticide applicators just can't resist using because you have this wonderful toy, how can you not use it? And the story of all of these chemicals really is you have an amazing tool, it could do amazing good, but we always overuse it and make it ineffective. Uh, Just take DDT as a classic example. If we had only used DDT for public health emergencies to stop typhus outbreaks. It was used in Naples in 1944 to stop a typhus outbreak. First time in human history, a typhus outbreak was stopped. If we'd only used it for that, for stopping typhus, stopping malaria, stopping yellow fever and nothing else, we would still be able to use it today. It could still be an effective tool, but we couldn't do that. We had to put it into wallpaper of our nurseries. We had to put it in paints for our homes. We had to spray it we had to use bug bombs in our homes to kill the housefly. We had to use it in our agriculture. We had to use it in our forestry. One of the first actions by the EPA when it was created in 1972 was the banning of DDT. But even that ban, if you read it carefully, it's not banned for forest. It wasn't banned yet for forestry. It wasn't banned for so-called agricultural emergencies. That is where the farmer, like the cotton grower, couldn't find a suitable alternative. And it wasn't banned for export. We continued to synthesize it and sell it overseas for decades after we banned it uh, for domestic use. So it's, it's all about this overuse 
You know, you could take the herbicides and say, they're also an amazing tool. If we only use them for things like stopping an invasive outbreak of plants in the Hawaiian Islands uh, for the ecological restoration in a targeted, limited way, they would be great. But we can't stop ourselves from then deploying them in, in weapons across Southeast Asia or or spraying them to kill dandelions and, and not realizing that's why we're going to get cancer or kids will have developmental abnormalities 20 years later. Yeah, I think that what I just keep coming back to is this notion that we all as humans live in ecosystems and every piece of that ecosystem is valuable. And there's this Native American see, saying, which I hope will not sound trite, but it's, you know, man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand upon it and uh, we are a strand within it. And I, I just... I can't help but think that we have overused these very powerful tools, as you're saying, and we think of ourselves weaving the web of life when in fact we are just a piece of it. And I think that the, the, the crazy question that comes up here is what happens if you kill all the mosquitoes? Nobody likes to get bitten by mosquitoes. I live in Texas. I live in Austin. And this summer we had horrible mosquitoes in my backyard, but I did not call the exterminator. You know, you see these vans driving around Austin that say, we'll get rid of your mosquitoes. And I'm thinking, yeah. And then what are you doing to the watershed? And where are all these chemicals that you're using around the houses in, in Westlake or in, in Austin to get rid of these mosquitoes going? They're going into the rivers and lakes and streams that I like to go play in. And, and the mosquitoes have to be a part of an ecosystem. And we've seen this time and time again, though no one likes gnats or mosquitoes, they're food for something else, which is food for something else. And if we just use these chemicals as if we are weaving the web of life, if we're wielding these chemicals irresponsibly, we will suffer the consequences when these ecosystems collapse. And we're seeing that with plants and ecological niches and, and how these are all just collapsing around us when we when we try and play God. And I just, man, it's the pattern is over and over and over. We clearly cannot recite the last 300 years of history. We are clearly living hand to mouth and we continue to do it. And I just worry that we do it in every, in every way and there will be more chemicals. And Bayer Monsanto is a huge agribusiness company now and glyphosate is used prominently. And we have GMO crops, which are Roundup ready, which means they have, you know, genetics genes spliced into them that allow them to be resistant to Roundup and they can use more Roundup. So let's talk about glyphosate a little bit, because that's a really hot topic for a lot of people today. Um, my, what I know about glyphosate is that it's water soluble. And so this certainly could end up in the muscle of meat, but what do you know about this pesticide and its history and really the implications of its use? Yeah, so maybe before I dive into that question, I can just look at it a little bit bigger picture because yeah. it goes with whether you're talking about glyphosate or DDT or any of these chemicals, it also goes to the larger point that we end up with having with the cycle of dependency where we have to use more of it and more chemicals. And the reason is that the pests evolve resistance really quickly. So for example, when we started using DDT intensively against malaria-bearing mosquitoes, yellow fever-bearing mosquitoes, and uh, louse that lice that cause typhus, um, those organisms evolved resistance within a couple of years. It's mm. that fast. And so what does that mean? It means you have to use greater volume and more and different kinds of chemicals. So I think Rachel Carson, if she were alive today, she would be so disheartened because she thought the situation was bad in 1962. She died in 1964 of cancer uh, after being vilified by the chemical companies. Mm. But we actually use far more uh, different kinds of pesticides at far greater volumes today than we did then. 
And in fact, by, by the turn of the century, by 2000, we were using about twice the volume globally as we were in 1962 of pesticides. And that has to happen because of this evolution of resistance. And then we, we move into these monocultures and you get into the monocultures, you're creating this fast feast for the pests that, that they just are going to explode. There's no way to avoid it. And when you use the chemicals of pesticides, you kill their predators, you kill the spiders, you kill the birds that eat them, you kill the parasitoid wasps that parasitize them. And so as a consequence, it becomes this cycle where you depend on more and more chemicals when you use the chemicals. That's the bigger point, and it's quite an important point because it's totally non-sustainable. You can just see how, how uh, and it makes the chemical companies wealthy because all they have to do is realize they need the next class of chemicals, they need to develop it, and they can make a fortune because the, the insects will have, res- the, the pests will have evolved resistance to their last class of chemicals. So we got the carbon mates right after World War II. We got the um, the neonicotinoids, which are the nicotine mimics. So nicotine is one of the oldest insecticides. It was used before modern agriculture. And these are synthetic versions of nic- nicotine that by the late 1990s had replaced organophosphate insecticides as the most used insecticides in the world. Uh, all of these new classes that, that come about. And uh, so going back to your question about glyphosate, um, it's the most, as far as I know, the most used herbicide in the United States and many parts of the world it is, is number one or number two. And um, it's it's thought to be carcinogenic. There's been, you know, quite a bit of debate about that, but in animal models, it causes cancer. There's a good chance it's carcinogenic in humans. Um, I didn't talk about that aspect of it on the Joe Rogan show. I was thinking more about the neurotoxicity aspects of it, but it's toxic in many different ways. And And the biggest concern that I have about it is with the child developing in the womb and in early development, because these chemicals are affecting development and lead to um, to long-term health problems that can emerge much later, um, both in terms of developmental abnormalities, but also cancers that develop because of early exposures um, down the line. Um, in in Europe, uh, you know, one of the things that that um, I got some criticism for after Joe, going to Joe Rogan, as I said, it's banned in Europe, and people were saying that's not true. Well. It's banned in almost every European country or in the process of being banned in almost every European country. It's not an EU-wide ban, but just about every country in Europe has already banned it or is in the process of banning it. It's just country by country. So I was just doing it a little bit, you know, short, short um, language about it when I talked about it with Joe. But yes, it is getting banned uh, throughout Europe. And, um, and I think that it would have been banned in the United States had uh, Hillary Clinton been elected because they were in the process of, of going that way Right, at, right when uh, Trump became president. I suspect it will get banned under under President Biden uh, because I think he's going to return to these important issues that they were working on at the end of the Obama administration on these toxic chemicals. But it's a huge problem. It's it's um, it's quite toxic and it's, it's going to remain in our water supplies for a long time. You know, it, I just don't understand how any administration, regardless of their leanings could continue this. I know that um, conservative policies sometimes want to favor business. And I think that in this case, it's very clear cut. We know whether you're on the conservative or the liberal or you're moderate in your political views. I think that the only way you could see glyphosate as a good thing is if you are looking at the bottom line of Bayer Monsanto. And I think this is an issue that goes across partisan lines. This goes across party lines. And I hope that it gets banned in this country. I 
I do not know what will happen, regardless of the administration that takes power uh, after this election, which is just in a crazy space right now. Um, I, I hope that glyphosate gets banned because it, it should be. It's being banned in almost all European countries, like you were saying. And and believe me, I know about people trying to nitpick your your words on Joe Rogan. It's uh, yeah. it's what happens when you go on that podcast. It's kind of it's kind of BS, but it's 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 the nature of of being on Joe's show, which is good. A lot of people were listening. Well, so, I will say that uh, almost all of the uh, people who contacted me after the show were really positive, and and they had excellent questions and comments, and I I, I really appreciated that. I thought that his his fan base is amazing. Um, it's just that some people, you know, they'll find some little thing to nitpick, and and um, in particular on the on the anti glyphosate side, uh, some people were upset that I hadn't brought up the carcinogenic part of it, which is a big deal. Uh, it's just that um, you know you can't talk about everything, and I I think that is an important issue to talk about. Um, but then we have to ask the question: Okay, let's say it is banned. What are we replacing it with? And the history of pesticides and the history of chemicals in general is what we in ecotoxicology call regrettable replacements, where you have a toxic chemical, you discover it's toxic. The burden of proof is on the consumer, right? The, the, the chemical company can put these chemicals out there without proving they're safe. They do it all the time. And then they have the power, they have the money, they use these product defense companies to defend themselves. Um, I actually just did an episode of my podcast, Science History Podcast, with David Michaels, who was the head of OSHA under President Obama, talking about this very problem of chemical companies using these, these so-called product defense companies to obfuscate the science, to, conf to confuse everyone, to delay. And, um, and what happens is eventually you, you know, you're able to show uh, that these chemicals are toxic, they're causing cancer, they're causing developmental abnormalities, they're causing uh, various health effects, then you get them pulled from the market. But the way our regulatory system works is you don't pull the class off the market, you pull that one chemical off the market and then you replace it with something else. And what you replace it with, we discovered 20 years later is toxic after it's been spread throughout the environment. And then it takes us another 20 years to get it banned. So we're in a terrible situation where the burden of proof is exactly the opposite of what it should be. These chemicals should not be allowed to be deployed until the companies prove they're both safe and effective and not environmentally dangerous, not dangerous to human health. It doesn't happen that way. And, um, and if, if we're going to keep the system we have, where well, we as consumers have to prove these things are dangerous, then when you prove one chemical is dangerous, the whole class should be banned. Um, we could take uh, the PFAS chemicals as an example of this, which are a big deal in, in water supplies throughout the United States and throughout the world right now, and a major, major issue. And we know two of these chemicals, PFO and PFOS, have been proven to be highly toxic and so they're, they've been banned, but we haven't banned the class. And the other chemicals just haven't been studied to that level. They're going to be shown to be toxic. And yet, why do we have to do millions of dollars of work on each of the thousands of chemicals in the class in order to get each one pulled off? It's crazy. Where is that class of chemicals coming from? It's in watersheds, so, water supplies? So these are, yeah, these are our perfluoralkyl substances, and they're, um, they're, um, they were accidentally discovered to be waterproofing chemicals uh, in the nuclear weapons industry. And they've been since used for all kinds of waterproofing pur purposes like uh, Scotchgard, Gore-Tex, um, mm. the 3M products that um, they're used in food packaging. Um, so that goes to your podcast because these are food contact chemicals oh. and we're getting them in our food supply. Um, the, the, 
producers and users of these chemicals, the big chemical companies have been dumping them in, in water supplies for decades. And we have huge parts of the United States right now with, with incredible concentrations of the chemicals. There's an excellent film called Dark Waters about it that came out recently. Uh, but this is another major problem. I could go through hundreds of these examples. It's not limited to glyphosate. It's not limited to, to these PFAS chemicals. There, there are so many different chemicals like this where it's problematic because we look at them. We have our regulation. We have our policies around them completely backwards. You know, there was recently something that came out with, uh, I think, PFAs, perfluoroalkanes in, uh, in Tobo Chico. This mineral water, Consumer Reports did a, a piece on mineral waters and contamination, and uh, my beloved Topo Chico got on the chopping block, and I haven't had any since, and I've been drinking uh, you know, more pure mineral water since then, but all these processed waters had high levels of, some had arsenic. People can go to that Consumer Reports uh, article. I'll link it in the show notes. You can A lot of these mineral waters that are in the stores, whether it's Starkey water at Whole Foods had high levels of arsenic, I believe, and yeah, these chemicals are, are everywhere. It's just I, I I don't know. It's a bleak picture for me. There's so many different types yeah. of chemicals. So I would just say on that front, one of the best things you can do for the environment and for your own health is not buy bottled water. And um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, on the environmental side, those bottles are are plastic and they are uh, they're polluting the earth. And we have these incredible problems with microplastics now. You can't find an an area of the earth, including the deep ocean trenches, without microplastics. It's coming sometimes, from all this plastic use. Sometimes you can get them in glass, but yeah. And glass is fine. You know, glass is inert, non-toxic, and and definitely preferable. If you care about your health, um, and you're and you're going for uh, for things like milk and um, other liquids that you want to buy a quality, expensive product, get it in glass for sure. Uh, but also, these plastics they have they have many toxic chemicals in them. Um, they have bisphenols in them. They have phthalates in them. Um, and they also, um, they a lot of these plasticizers, they come off and especially when they're heated. So people microwave their food in a plastic dish, they're getting toxic chemicals in their food. There's a lot of things you can do as a consumer to avoid your own consumption of these things. Um, for example, when I had my kids, we used glass baby bottles instead of plastic baby bottles. Yeah. I was thinking of the bisphenol chemicals when you were mentioning that individual chemicals get pulled off the market, yet the class doesn't because- even from my perspective as a consumer, it was pretty obvious that the BPA thing was kind of a bait and switch. People said, oh, BPA is xenoestrogenic. It stimulates breast cancer cells and cell culture. And we said, okay, the bisphenol A is going to be uh, you know, uh, a xenoestrogen, but what about BPE? <laughs> what about BPC? There are so many bisphenols that are used in our plastics now, and they continue to be used in plastics. And we'll see this in plastics over and over, BPA-free. Well, that just means that the next xenoestrogenic bisphenol is now in the, in the can lining, in the soda can lining. I don't drink anything out of cans because of this. I don't, I'm not going to drink uh, LaCroix or a sparkling water in a can because it's lined with plastic that has other bisphenols and xenoestrogens. And I, I certainly try to a militant extent to avoid the plastic, but you know, you remind me that it's basically impossible whether I get um, most of my listeners will know that I get meat from Belcampo, which is an organic regenerative farm in Northern California and white oak pastures in Georgia. But whenever they send me meat, they're sending it to me in plastic. And I haven't been able to convince them just to wrap it up in, in um, parchment paper and just send it to me because it'll be a, a melted mess in a box. And how are they going to do that? So there's no good way to do this. I, I recently hunted and I wanted to ask you about this because I went hunting and I got a deer 
and I wanted to get your perspective on wild game by latitude. Um, my impression is that if I'm hunting it, not at an Arctic latitude, that the wild game will be cleaner. But what do you think about that? Yeah, so let me address that question. But before that, I just want to say that the bisphenol example you gave is really the poster child for this concept of regrettable replacements. Like bisphenol A was replaced with bisphenol S, and it looks like bisphenol S is probably at least, if not more toxic than bisphenol A. And there, there's other examples with the bisphenols like you mentioned. And so, again, you look at this label, it says BPA-free, you think, great, you know, problem solved. No, that problem is not solved. It's just a different problem for which we don't have the data yet or, or only... The, the scientists in my field have the data, but it hasn't gotten to the regulatory level yet. Uh, but going to your question on hunting, um, so it's a complicated question. I'd love to talk about it, but let's first back up a little bit and explain the latitude um, reference that you gave. So there's a phenomenon in the Earth's atmospheric circulation with regard to chemicals that's called global distillation. And what this is is that for Persistent organic pollutants, which are what most of the chemicals we're talking about are organic, they're, they're carbon-based, they're persistent, meaning they persist in the environment for months, if not decades, and they can undergo long-range transport in the atmosphere. So if you look at the, the Earth as, as a ball flying around in space, the reason the equator is where it is, is that's the part that's most directly facing the sun. So the lower the latitude, zero degrees, you have the most intense solar radiation. And if you're at low latitude, you're going to have the amount of evaporation of these persistent organic pollutants is going to exceed the amount of deposition from the atmosphere. So you have net evaporation at low latitude of things like pesticides, of flame retardant chemicals like polybrominid diphenyl ethers, of perfluoralkyl substances we were just talking about. All of these chemicals, they have a volatile phase. They, they will become a gas. And like, if you buy a, a vinyl chloride shower curtain, that smell that you smell, that, that nice smell of that shower curtain, that's actually the vinyl chloride volatizing off the shower curtain. It'll lose half of its mass in six months. That's crazy, right? So I don't use those shower curtains. I have cloth shower curtains in my home because that's, you don't want your family exposed to that. It's nuts. No. And that's what's happening on a global scale where you have this evaporation of these toxic chemicals at low latitude so even if you apply the pesticide or you use the flame retardant on the ground, it, it will evaporate some portion of it. And it'll, it'll deposit from the atmosphere at a colder temperature. So over the years, it'll move its way in the Northern hemisphere to the North, Southern hemisphere to the South. The atmospheric circulation patterns are hemispherically somewhat independent from each other. So you get this separation occurring. Um, so air, you know, and if you're at the equator, you have this intense solar radiation that causes air to rise. That's why the world's rainforests are, are centered around the equator because as air rises, it cools down. As it cools down, it can't hold its moisture. That air then sinks at 30 degrees north and south latitudes. So now you have dry, cold air coming towards the earth. It's warming up. That's why the deserts are at 30 degrees north and south latitude because you have this high pressure system where dry air is warming up. So it'll hold even more moisture so it won't rain very much. And you also have air rising at 60 degrees north and south latitude. That's why we get temperate rainforests at that latitude. And you have air sinking at the poles. These are called Hadley cells. So the poles and 30 degrees north latitude and south latitude are the driest places on earth. Um, but there are also hemispheric sinks for these persistent organic pollutants because once they get to the poles, it's perpetually cold. And so you end up with the deposition for the atmosphere far exceeding evaporation. 
And these are mostly lipophilic chemicals. These persistent organic pollutants are fat soluble. And so they get incorporated into the food web. And, and this is, if you look at the very lightest compounds, like if we take PCBs as a class, I do a lot of work on PCBs. There are 209 congeners or chemical varieties of PCBs. And they have between one and 10 chlorines in, in the molecule. The ones that have one and 10 and two chlorines are so light, they never get out of the atmosphere once they're in the atmosphere. The ones that are three, four chlorines, they readily transport in the atmosphere and they their highest levels on earth are at the poles. That's where they're, they're accumulating the most. And you look at, um, and the very heaviest ones, they will move, but very slowly. So they tend to stay near their emission source. So this is why your question is complicated. If you're hunting a deer, pretty much almost everywhere in the world, deer are gonna be low in contaminants because they're herbivores. So they're low on the food web. They're not high trophic level animals. But if you're hunting a carnivore, like the people that I work with in St. Lawrence Island, they eat polar bears, they, they eat um, bowhead whale, they eat walrus, they eat ice seals. These are predators. And they have hundreds of parts per billion PCBs in their animal fat. And they, and they use the fat in rendered oils. They have it on every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, saying they have high levels of pesticides like DDT, even though they haven't been used in a long time, they're still there, they're accumulating in the Arctic. Um, so I would say if you're a deer hunter, the problem is not latitude, the problem is gonna be local emission sources. If you're hunting deer near an industrial zone in the Midwest and the Great Lakes, or along the so-called Cancer Alley in Louisiana, that's probably not okay to eat that deer. They're probably gonna have high levels of pollution. Um, but if you're hunting away from industry, it's probably very safe. That's a localized problem because it's a low trophic level animal, not, not one sitting up high in the food web. Um, uh, so we could talk more about this, but it, it, it really, on, an, on, a, on a herbivore, it's going to depend much more on local pollution than it will on these global patterns. On a carnivore, sure, it's going to depend on global patterns as well as local pollution sources. And I think it's interesting you mentioned Cancer Alley because isn't the hypothesis there that that is glyphosate in in the rivers? Um, I mean, that's so, one of the things that I've seen that it's that it's a watershed problem. Yeah, around, so it's much yeah. more than just glyphosate. That's the yeah. whole petrochemical industry that's up and down that corridor. Um, they're producing all these hydrocarbon products, the fuel products. They're also producing massive amounts of pesticides, flame retardants. They're producing PFAS compounds. I mean, it goes on and on. There's so many chemical companies clustered there. Same thing with some of the uh, the clustering of chemical companies in New Jersey and around the Great Lakes. There's several of these areas in the United States, and you could find it throughout the world, where um, these, these chemicals occur. And that gets to the environmental justice issues because we don't have these chemical companies, that we don't have these manufacturing plants in wealthy areas. They're all in poor areas, and then they drive those areas further into poverty and those are the people that are getting the most chemical exposure of anyone on earth because they can't afford to live somewhere else and uh, it drives cycles of poverty. So there's a whole field of environmental justice that deals with this, but it's a serious problem. But glyphosate's one of, of really tens of thousands of chemicals that are coming out of these plants that are, that are dangerous. Um, of course, it's produced in huge quantities, but so are the petrochemical uh, chemicals coming out of them. So I brought up a picture here. This is the wonders of the internet. So we've got a picture of Louisiana Cancer's Alley, and you can see, I guess this might be a little small for people, but I'm just looking at this and there's just all of these pollutants along this Cancer Alley, the petrochemicals and polybutene polymers and melamine and polyisobutylene. And, you know, I mean, this is incredible. I've never looked at it in this way, but it's pretty striking 
the amount of petrochemicals that are being produced along this section of, it says Baton Rouge to New Orleans. Yep. A trail of 150 petroleum factories creates a glaring backdrop of smokestacks behind the Mississippi River. Oh my God. The other thing I wanted to show people was these Hadley cells that you were describing with the equatorial level here, this sort of distillation uh, with the evaporation and then the condensation and then the evaporation and the condensation and with things ending up in the polar cells where it is always cold. And as you describe on St. Lawrence Island, or I guess the worst thing you could possibly do as a human for the bioaccumulation of these persistent organic pollutants or persistent organic pesticides would be to hunt a carnivore at a high latitude. And that, like you're saying, these polar bears or these whales that are high on the trophic and they're just going to accumulate tons of this. And so, man, like it's, it's a bleak picture. It's a bleak picture. Yeah. And so it's a little bit more complicated than that, because if you go to the high trophic level carnivores and long lived carnivores in the Arctic, they're going to have the highest levels of intermediate molecular weight, persistent organic pollutants. They won't have the highest levels of the heavy molecular weight or the lightest molecular weight. Mm-hmm. So it gets a little bit more complicated, but that's generally the case. And the reason is that the heavy molecular weight compounds do not readily transport through the atmosphere. So the heavy, highest levels of those are going to be along these petrochemical uh, uh, chemical manufacturing corridors because they stay near their emission source. Uh, so I would not hunt in that or fish in that cancer alley as an example. And I feel really badly for the people who live there. They've been totally screwed over because they've had no say in the fact that these these uh, chemical companies were cited there. They suffer the consequences. They don't get compensated for it. They don't have much say in what to do about it. It's a really bad situation. And it happens globally too. Look at the Bhopal disaster in India. That was a pesticide plant. And it was it caused the largest industrial accident um, you know, largest fatalities of any in, in history. Um, many thousands of people killed, tens of thousands uh, very seriously harmed in their health. And they were they had a pesticide manufacturing plant which had horrendous safety record, horrendous oversight, and very dangerous chemical reactions occurring in the middle of a large city. So, you know, you're not going to put that in uh, Silicon Valley. And so where people don't have the political clout, that's where these things end up. And it's really a terrible thing. So there's all the sustainability issues we've talked about, but there's also the justice issues that relate to this as well. All right. So as I'm thinking about these diseases, we talked a little bit about yellow fever and we talked about malaria. One of the things that comes up for me is this question of why have these diseases become a bigger deal for humans in the last few millennia. And the question that I want to ask you is, can we draw connections between farming practices? And can we draw connections between humans farming the land? As we've talked about, that has many implications in terms of the need for use of chemical pesticides, et cetera. Can we draw connections between farming and the sort of expansion of malaria, the worsening of malaria, the worsening of yellow fever. Wanted to get your perspective on this because these are diseases that we think about in recent human history, but maybe they haven't always been as endemic as they are today. Yeah, so for sure with malaria, the advent of it becoming an epidemic disease coincided with the advent of agriculture in human history about 10,000 years ago. And that's because of the, the issue of having water for crops created standing water for the Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, that also provides breeding habitat for Aedes aegypti, which is the mosquito that vectors yellow fever. But there are so many sources of standing water 
now beyond agriculture that we have to look at it in a much more complicated way. So just as an example, wherever railroads were constructed um, in the late 19th century and then through the 20th century, uh, they would dig up the gravel for the grade and uh, in order to elevate the tracks above whatever the landscape. And everywhere they dug up that gravel, that created standing water and therefore malaria spread with the expanding rail network. And the workers of the railroad became the blood meals for the Anopheles mosquitoes, which meant that they had both a reservoir for new infections and breeding habitat all through that route. Same thing with warfare. You see huge increases in malaria and yellow fever associated with war because you have bombs that create uh, create craters that become standing water. You have trenches that fill with water. You have bulldozed airstrips. You have all of these new habitats created for the vectors with with warfare. So there are many things that create mosquito breeding habitat. Farming is one of them, but so many other human activities like construction of roads and railroads and warfare do the same thing. And I just find that to be such an interesting highlight to our overall conversation that what we're seeing over and over is that human activity and particularly human progress, quote, activity, human, quote, technological advances, whether it's railroads, bombs, farming, have in, in many ways come back to bite us in the butt later by, by changing the landscape, as we talked about earlier, by disrupting the ecology or disrupting the sort of ecosystem in which many homo hominids and homo sapiens and homo erectus would have lived for millions of years. And we can at least hypothesize that many of these communicable diseases, these vector-borne diseases, this um, yellow fever, this flavivirus, and the Aedes aegypti mosquito, and the Anopheles mosquito carrying malaria would not have been as much of a problem for humans until we started really trying to change the landscape in a massive way, or we're doing things technologically to change the landscape. So that's that's interesting for me. And again, it kind of speaks to this idea, wow, have we gone wrong? <laughs> Yeah, I think there's two, yeah. there's two parts to that. There's all of those changes you're talking about. And then there's also the human population growth making for a denser population because these diseases are all density dependent. The higher the density, the greater the, the spread, the prevalence of the disease. And we saw that with the rickettsial diseases, the, the body lice borne diseases that were treated you know, with DDT or other things in the past. So yep. the, other, the other thing I really wanted to ask you about was perchlorates because this affects our food supply too. And I know this is something that you're an expert in and that you've done a lot of research in, and I didn't want to um, avoid this in the podcast. And in our previous prior to podcast conversations, you've talked about foods where perchlorates can, can end up, but tell us a little about perchlorates because in this podcast, we've talked a lot about human made pesticides and perchlorates appear to be a sort of a human manufactured chemical that has gotten into our food supply. But I wanted the listeners to understand how pervasive these are and which foods might have more or less and what they might do to us in a negative way. Sure. So perchlorate is a, is an anion that is a negatively charged ion that's comprised of a chlorine atom with four oxygen atoms. And it combines with cations like potassium or sodium to form a salt. So there are different perchlorates because there's different salts that form with perchlorate. And when uh, perchlorate gets into water, it dissociates. So then you have the free perchlorate molecule, which is toxic. And the reason it's toxic, the primary reason it's toxic is that perchlorate, it's it's highly water soluble. So it, it moves around readily in water, but when it gets into organisms like in people, 
it outcompetes iodide at a protein that's called the sodium iodide symporter, which is a protein that's embedded in the epithelium, the wall of the, thi- of the thyroid gland that imports iodide. And I, the reason why we have to have iodide in our diet is we need it to make thyroid hormone. So thyroid hormone has four iodide atoms in it. And we have these pumps, these, these iodide pumps, the sodium iodide symporter that bring that iodide. Um, and the, the thyroid is really a unique structure. It's kind of like a balloon where if you think of the, the, the material of the balloon as being this, uh, this, um, uh, this wall of cells that pump in the iodide and pump in the ingredients. And inside the balloon is where the molecule is constructed. It's because it's kind of a acid reaction that has to be occur in a, in a particular kind of structure. It's the only structure like this in the body. And so the perchlorate binds to that protein and prevents iodide uptake into the thyroid follicles. And that causes hypothyroidism, not enough thyroid hormone. And thyroid hormones involved in everything in development and metabolism, as you know. And so being hypothyroid is, is bad for just about everything. And if, and if we look at early development, it leads to problems with brain development in children, which is a huge issue. Uh, so, so perchlorate does occur naturally, but the only places it occurs naturally are in the driest environments on earth. So like the Atacama Desert of Northern Chile, which we talked about before, because that's the source of caliche deposits that used to be used for fertilizers. Uh, the arid deserts of the American Southwest, you'll find perchlorate naturally occurring there in one, two parts per billion concentrations. Most of the perchlorate though is, is man-made. It's, it's produced because it's a potent oxidizer. So it's used in, in artillery and rockets. Like the space shuttle program was powered by perchlorate as a solid rocket propellant. It's what propels our airbags open and automobile crash. It's used in fireworks and road flares. Um, and then when we get to the question of food, it's used in food packaging for dry foods in order to reduce static charge. So a lot of food that's shipped around, like grains that have to be shipped dry, are shipped in perchlorate uh, in plastic packaging that has perchlorate embedded in it. Mm. And that perchlorate can get into our food. So we get it from many sources. It's highly water-soluble, um, and it can persist in water probably for thousands of years without breaking down, certainly for centuries. One of the most persisting chemicals out there of man-made chemicals. Um, we get it through our drinking water. We get it through liquids uh, like cow's milk because cows will drink the water that's contaminated, then it goes into the milk. Uh, we also get it in leafy vegetables like lettuce because those plants, they bring in a lot of water from the soil and they transpire out water out of their stomata, out of the leaves. When they do that, that water evaporating from the leaves, it leaves the perchlorate behind in the lettuce, in the tissue like the lettuce. So leafy vegetables have it. There's actually a couple of hundred different foods that are common foods that have perchlorate residues that we all eat. And um, the CDC did a study of uh, about 4,000 Americans and found that 100% of us have perchlorate in our urine. So we're all exposed to it. Such a bummer. Now, when 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 we're talking about this sodium iodide symporter at the level of the thyroid, um, that also makes me think about isothiocyanates, which is something we don't have to go into in detail on this podcast, but something I've spoken about in great detail in the past. 
these are a defense chemical made from glucosinolates in brassica or these uh, cruciferous vegetables like broccoli or kale, cauliflower, when glucosinolates combine with myrosinase to form isothiocyanates, which have the same effect in the human body. The most well-known isothiocyanate is sulforaphane, and it, it can inhibit the, uh, the uptake of iodide uh, at the level of the thyroid and contribute to hypothyroidism in a similar way. So it's scary to think that both from um, plant leaves that may intrinsically contain things like isothiocyanates that inhibit proper thyroid function or thyroid hormone formation in connection with man-made chemicals like perchlorate that we are really, really giving our thyroid a pretty good knock. And that's just a scary proposition for most of us. It's a, it's such a bummer. So you mentioned some of these foods, but I just want to run down these for people so they can really think about it. I, maybe I'll put something in the show notes with the list of the highest perchlorate foods. Drinking water would be a place to know if your drinking water is contaminated. I think that I'd have to look and see if something like a Berkey, I have no affiliation with them, would get out perchlorates. This is probably a reason to drink spring water that's tested or pure. Um, you said milk products, so you'd want to know where the the cows you're getting the milk from are drinking their water from, and make you know think about perchlorate concentration in milk. The one that you mentioned offline and then just here during the podcast was the lettuce and the leafy green vegetables. And nobody ever talks about this as a problem with leafy green vegetables, yet another problem with leafy green vegetables um, that could cause some pretty major issues for people if they are overeating these things. It makes me think I used to eat a lot of lettuce and I'm glad I don't eat those things anymore. But just considering that these, these perchlorates are going to be left behind, as you said, in the tissues of the leaf as they evaporate the water. Other foods that you think of that might be high in perchlorate that people should be aware of? Well, so it's highly regional. Even, even if you look at the most suspect foods like lettuce, it's highly regional. For example, right. California has a big problem with perchloric contamination. So does Texas. So does uh, Washington State. So does New Jersey. So does Massachusetts. So it's, it's concentrated around aerospace industry sites and is concentrated around uh, military sites, also production facilities. So for example, Henderson, Nevada, had a major production facility that for decades was dumping spent perchlorate into a ditch outside of their factory. And the reason they did this is that the shelf life for its use, effective use in things like rockets is about six months. After that, the reliability goes down. And so they would just dump any perchlorate that was older than six months into this pit. And for decades, they did this. It's highly water soluble. So it went into the groundwater, it then flowed into Lake Mead and then contaminated the Colorado River system. Uh, so it depends on where you are in the country and there's good maps. You can look up the perchlorate uh, contaminated sites in your region, uh, but there are parts of the country where you can eat leafy vegetables and not get any perchlorate at all because there's no perchlorate in the water in those sites. So it really depends on where you live. I, I wouldn't say avoid leafy green vegetables. I would just say that uh, know where your food is coming from and um, in terms of perchlorate contamination and and whether or not it's an issue in your area. If you live in Southern California, I bet you your water bill tells you how much perchlorate is in your drinking water. Uh, yeah, and so it's an individual thing, kind of like we talked about earlier, that you really just need to know what things are like where you are and how the food you're eating might be affected negatively yeah. by these contaminants. And Right, so cow's milk, for example, in California has been found to be much more impacted than cow's milk in many other parts of the country. Yeah. Oh man. So I'll just share this. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. I just quickly Googled this perchlorate occurrence mapping. 
Um, people can look at these documents. I think it goes by state to look at contaminant levels. And maybe there's a map in here that we could look at to see the perchlorate, but um, that's important to know. And ultimately, I, I wonder, you know, I think you could check your thyroid, check a TSH, check a T4, check a T3, check a reverse T3. But these all of these chemicals contribute to to our health as humans and in positive or negative ways, mostly in negative ways. And the theme that we see again and again is that human interaction with the planet in a way that breaks an ecosystem-based perspective that disrupts the ecology inevitably comes back to bite us. And that's a real bummer. Yeah. And also a lot of times these chemicals do much more than the generally known thing. So perchlorate is a great example of this. We know it causes hypothyroidism. It's been shown in numerous animals. It's been shown in humans. Um, but in, in my lab and in other labs, we're looking at other toxic effects. So like we have found using fish models that perchlorate disrupts reproductive development. The fish exposed to perchlorate end up having less mature gonads. And that could be a contributing factor to the fertility problem we're seeing around the world where industrialized countries, people are less, have less and less fertility. Sperm counts are less than half what they were 60, 70 years ago. And we've also found in our fish model that perchlorate causes non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it's obesogenic oh. and disrupts liver function. So it, these are not primary effects, but they are serious health effects and they may translate to humans as well. So in some ways it's, an, it's, a, it's clearly an endocrine disruptor. For sure. And, and the major mechanism known is the disruption of thyroid hormone, which could cause all these other problems because of the impacts on metabolism, but it appears to be other mechanisms of toxicity beyond the thyroid with perchlorate. And I'll mention that I've seen in my research, a number of studies, which confirm my bias, <laughs> which is that when in, in studies of free living humans, when they are eating more vegetables, often their, their fertility is impacted negatively. And I'll, I'll share one that I've shared in the past, which looks at Loma Linda males who are Loma Linda as a population of Southern California that is predominantly Seventh-day Adventist. And these uh, this group of people adheres to a vegan and vegetarian diet in a greater proportion than general average based on these religious ideals. But if you look at their fertility, what you will find is that um, this is the study of, is called food intake and food intake diet and sperm characteristics in a quote blue zone, the Loma Linda study. I always get asks about blue zones and I think that they're totally a fallacy. The study showed that the vegetables based uh, food intake decreased sperm quality. <laughs> In particular, a reduction in sperm quality in male factor patients would be clinically significant would require review. Inadequate sperm hyperactivation in vegans suggested compromised membrane calcium selective channels. And basically, they just found that those who ate more plant-based diets in Southern California, which as you're describing consistently, probably does have a significant problem with perchlorate, uh, had lower fertility. So here's yet another reason that we might want to be careful eating plants, in my opinion, or perhaps more broadly, considering where these plants are coming from. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast, but perchlorate sounds to me like it's one of these things you're not going to be able to wash off the plant if it's in the tissue of the plant. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's actually in the water in the tissue of the plant. So it 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 is a difficult one. You can filter it out of your drinking water. And so it is removable from water. It's It's expensive because you either have to use a, an ion exchange mechanism or... Um, there's resins that can remove it. There's a variety of ways to remove it. Like in Lake Mead, they've actually pumped the groundwater out where um, this contaminated plume was coming in and the concentrations in the groundwater 
were in the parts per thousand, and they've done an ion exchange in order to get it down to the parts per billion level. So there are ways to remove it, um, and, and it's energy expensive though. It's, it's energy intensive and expensive. Um, however, once you're in a lettuce, you're, you can't remove it from the lettuce. It's interior to the lettuce. It's stuck. And I just Googled this real quickly. Uh, apparently, according <clears throat> to the Berkey website, again, no affiliation, maybe they'll sponsor the podcast after this, that will remove perchlorate from your water as well. They have kind of a high density carbon filter, or you can get spring water or do reverse osmosis. So awesome. Thank you for elaborating on all that stuff. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. I think as a follow-up to this podcast, I'm going to have to have somebody on about how to detoxify from all these chemicals um, because I'm just thinking even myself, and I'd love to hear your perspective on how to avoid these as much as possible. These are unavoidable. I mean, I drink, I drink spring water in glass and I eat organic food and I eat mostly meat from good farms. And I was thinking, you know, Belcampo is in California, but it's at the base of Mount Shasta, which is not really in the major farming, the San Fernando Valley region of, of California. So I bet that there's not a whole lot of DDT in those soils. You know, you were talking about the drift of farms. And so I guess my mind goes to the point of asking you, if you could live anywhere in the world, where is the cleanest? And most people listening to this will not have the freedom to go do that, but yeah. how do we, how do we mitigate this? I'm just curious for my own selfish desire. Yeah. Is it New Zealand? Is it Australia? <laughs> like yeah. where, where, where might we find some cleanliness? And it sounds like there's nowhere that's completely clean. We can say there's nowhere that's totally clean, but if you had to choose anywhere, where would you live? Sure. So first of all, uh, you can test these questions you're asking. So for example, it's not difficult to test DDT residues or other pesticide residues. And so if you, if you have a company you work with that's making what they think is the cleanest meat available, it's testable. It's not, it's not beyond the realm of figuring out. It just takes a little bit of investment and you can figure out, is this actually as clean as they say it is? Um, so that's a testable thing. There's actually clean places in every state in the United States, you know, relatively. Of course, there's nowhere on earth that's completely free of these chemicals. Um, some, some places in the United States are going to be worse to live in than others for, uh, for health. And those are really the industrial areas and the intensive agricultural areas. But that being said, there's not a simple answer to your question because different chemicals are accumulated in different parts of the, of the country and of the world. But the good news is that you can live a clean life with um, making the right decisions for your family, um, not using pesticides in your home, uh, buying the right foods, preparing it the right way in any state in this country. If I live next to one of these petrochemical plants and I could move, I would move, you know, if I could afford it. But you could find somewhere probably within 100 or 200 miles that's much cleaner than where you are if you're in one of those situations. It's not, it's not like you have to move to New Zealand. Um, so that's the good news. Um, and really, our chemical exposures are, have a lot to do with our personal behavior, but, they, but there's also reasons to be activist about it. Like you were talking before about people spraying for mosquitoes in Austin. And when you do that, it's not just that you're making a decision about your own home. You're also affecting other people, which is grossly unfair because your neighbor may have little kids, may be living organically, and they're going to get the drift from what you spray in your yard. And so I, I think it's, it's terrible when people use pesticides without getting informed consent from their neighbors. They really should not do that. Um, and most people who use pesticides, they have no clue how toxic those chemicals are. 
And if they realize how toxic they are, there's no way they would do it because they're, they're really compromising their children's health. In my mind, the only reason to use pesticides in the home is for health and safety reasons. And so, for example, there are some, sometimes you have to use for things like termites because your, your home would be destroyed perhaps by termites otherwise, but that can be done by injecting wood and keeping the application quite local. And there may be a disease outbreak that requires the, the uh, killing of the vector. Other than that, it's not worth it. There's no other case. Um, I, I lived in Tucson in the late 90s and we bought a house. Um, my wife and I were living on a, a almost a, you know barely survivable wage at the time. And we had a baby and I came home from work one day and we had a column of ants going through our house that was four inches wide, must've been millions of ants all over the house. And so the typical person, the way they'd respond to that is called the terminator. But there was no way I was gonna use pesticides. So what I did is I walked upstream and I followed this trail of ants um, until it took me about half an hour, but I found the crack in the wall where they're coming through. And I took some spackle, I spackled up the crack in the wall to stop their influx. I got out my vacuum, I filled two vacuum bags with ants. Oh my God. And that was the end of the problem. And many times I've had uh, wasps nests on the eve of my house. I've never once used pesticides in my life. I did not use pesticides. I put on my fire gloves, I put on a work suit, I put on my chainsaw helmet and I got my vacuum cleaner and I put it up to the door of their hive. I turned that sucker on and I, I was able to suck up almost every wasp. A couple of them went after me, but with my armor, they didn't get me. And then I could knock down the, the nest and vacuum up all the rest. So there are non-chemical solutions to every household pest problem you're going to encounter with the possible exception of termites and you know the occasional cases where there's a, a vector that has to be controlled. And I think that the other take-home message to people is know where the food you're coming eating is coming from. There is a benefit to grass-fed, grass-finished meat. Know what the quality of the organs you're eating is because eating organs is, is incredibly important. And this is yet another reason to, to eat nose to tail and to get the right nutrients in your diet so that you can have the detoxification systems in your liver. This is why we do what we do at Heart and Soil. This is why we do, this is why I believe in nose to tail nutrition, but know where the meat is coming from, know where the organs are coming from, whether they're fresh or desiccated, know where your water's coming from and mitigate your exposure to pesticides in your house. And then I'll get somebody else on the podcast, guys, that talks about detoxification soon. And we'll talk about sauna or what, however we can get rid of these chemicals. But I, I just want to bring it back full circle and think about this a little more as we wrap up here. And as we've talked about this, a point that I wanted to emphasize is that when there are outbreaks, we've talked about lice a few times, or at least the outbreak of typhus, which is a, a rickettsial disease from lice, from body lice. And uh, rickettsias, it, well, I should say lice, louse attacks, these lice only happen when humans are crowded, right? So a lot of this, I just can't help but see this pattern that a lot of these problems occur when humans are packed in too tight, that, you know, foodborne illness, waterborne illness, that even the bubonic plague had to do with, I believe in some ways, the structure of the city with rats and humans in, in very close contact to rats that were carrying this, 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 you know, this bacteria um, that, that was causing the plague. And 
that that it that a lot of it happens when humans get out of ecosystems and that when humans are crowded that's what happens with lice that's what happens with the bubonic plague i, I don't I'd, I'd be interested i'd have to learn more about malaria and some of the mosquito-borne diseases like yellow fever i'm hopefully going to africa in january and i have to get a, a yellow fever vaccination and so i was thinking about yellow fever remembering from medical school this virus this flavor virus that i hadn't thought about in years and years but i'm curious about malaria and and yellow fever, but I guess I'm not going to fall prey to this romantic fairy tale, better past narrative that that all of it is from the yells of today. But there are some examples of the things that we're dealing with here are human inventions. They are human caused by monocropping the soil, by creating, as you say, a monoculture ecosystem of plants, a monoculture crop of plants that creates a freaking buffet. It's a Mongolian barbecue buffet of lettuce for for insects to go to go ham on and the reason we have to use pesticides is because that's not an ecosystem and you haven't introduced all the other bugs in there that would normally prey on the insects that are trying to eat the lettuce or the other or the owls or the birds that are eat those so i just see it as wow this is a recurring idea that if we mess with the ecosystem Jared Diamond was right in my opinion. This is the worst mistake in human history. We're just continually trying to clean this up and we're either getting too crowded as humans into, into tight spaces and getting lice or maybe these even these malarial and these mosquito-borne diseases are because we're creating all this stagnant water and the actual predators that are supposed to be eating the mosquitoes in the ecosystem are not able to thrive. And with the monocropping of plants, we can see that we have to use pesticides because we should not be growing monocrop plants and there's too many pests in there. It's just, to me, it's like, wow, we've really gone wrong. I'm not sure how to get back to it other than me buying a deer skin uh, out, outfit and just going to live in the in the mountains of Idaho or Montana. But do you see, am I thinking about this incorrectly? Do you see this pattern also that we're just really undoing? We're just, we're just patching the dam. We're trying to put our finger in the dam in a whole bunch of places where we've just gone, we were just not wise. We're not thinking about the long-term and we're, we're sort of breaking these ecosystem, uh, these rules, these fundamental rules of the way that animals and life forms especially humans are supposed to interact with their ecosystem. When we do that, things get out of balance. And then we have to use these horrible chemicals to try and get them back in balance, which inevitably have other side effects long-term. To me, it looks just like Western medicine. It's entirely analogous to what we do in Western medicine. Do, am I thinking about this in the same way that you are? Yeah. Do you see these parallels too? I 100% agree. And in fact, if you go back and read Silent Spring, published in 1962, that's exactly what that book is about. And um, and then just to go back to two things you mentioned, one with regard to typhus, I wanna reassure your listeners that typhus is vectored by the body louse, not the head louse. And so, right, right. you know, the, the lice that we tend to get is the head lice and it does not carry uh, typhus. And not only that, if you ever get the body louse, you just have to wash, you know, you can kill it with a shower and washing your clothing. So um, it's, a, it's filthy um, crowded conditions where you get typhus and um, not carried by the head louse. And, um, and then uh, also you were talking about um, sourcing your meat and sourcing your food. And I, I'm a big fish eater. And um, there's a lot of data on contaminant levels in fish. And mm -hmm. the lowest contaminant levels in fish are from wild caught fish, especially the Alaskan wild caught fish, which are one of the only sustainable fisheries in the world. And they are, uh, it, there's a nice paper published in Science showing that they have the lowest levels of these contaminants of any of the fishes. The farm fishes have much higher levels of these contaminants. Right. Uh, but yeah, the, the way you're thinking about this and the metaphor of the dam with, with all of our fingers in the holes is exactly right. 
And uh, this is what this goes back to many of the other topics we've covered, where we think about these things backwards, and we're just like you're talking about in medicine, where we're jumping at symptomatic things rather than going to the cause of the problem. It's the same way we're we're destroying the ecology instead of having a functional ecology, and then we have to patch it up with chemicals that cause further destruction of the ecology. And that, to me, is I mean, that's such a great point to end on. I think of this as the remembering. I don't know where we go from here. Maybe I'll ask you that question because I don't see a way out until we recreate an ecology with the, with nature. And that may sound woo-woo, but that's what the remembering is about for me, which is just a broader concept that I've talked about and my followers will have heard me say those words. But it's, you know, I think of animal-based diets and carnivore-based eating around how humans can start to remember who we are in terms of nutrition. But ecology-based living is who we are in terms of humans. And until we can recreate that, I don't think we're going to get out of this, this problem. I mean, how do we fix this? Where do we go from here, Frank? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of elements to it, but maybe I'll just say one thing. I've talked about this before, which is if there's two things in our country, especially in the United States, that should not be politicized, that are heavily politicized, is public health and the environment. And these are things that everybody should be trying to solve using the science rather than being in denial and, and using it as a way to, to go into tribes. We have to solve these problems together. Um, and, and having a functional ecology is critical. I mean, just look at the coronavirus epidemic we're having right now, the pandemic. This is caused by our invasion of natural systems. It's, it's people in China who were eating bats or eating wildlife that were infected by a bat coronavirus that then caused this, this pandemic. And the same thing happened with HIV AIDS in Africa, same thing with MERS and SARS. We have all these diseases emerging because of inappropriate behavior, especially around food. And a lot of it has to do with eating wildlife and then getting the zoonotic diseases from the wildlife. So same thing with these chemicals and the use of chemicals in our lives. We, we shouldn't be using these chemicals except for in public health emergencies. And the fact that we do is a failure of our society. So we need a completely different regulatory system. We need a different politics around it. And I'm fine if we're fighting between the right and the left over our education system, over our courts, over, you know, just about anything. But I'm not fine if we're fighting about it over public health and the environment. I agree with you. I think there are some issues that should not be politicized and public health should not be. I've done many podcasts on coronavirus in the past. In fact, a few weeks prior to the release of this one, I did a second one with Ivor Cummins. You guys should listen to that one on coronavirus. I, I see the coronavirus outbreak as caused by crowding, right? Again, human crowding. And it's it's not, I, I know there's some question about where it came from. I, I think that we hypothesize that it came from a bat or a pangolin, but there's, there's a lot of questions there that remain in my mind as well, but it's very clear to me that the coronavirus has spread because of metabolic health issues in humans and that that most people appear to be able to, to deal with it very well. And this is not to be insensitive to anyone listening who's had a family member negatively affected by it. Thankfully, none of my family's been affected, but I'll tell you, my parents are pretty scared and I'm worried for them. I'm trying to help them become as metabolically healthy as possible. But I think that um, we're, we're in a strange position as humans. And it's interesting that this conversation around chemicals really challenges us to ask, how is any of this sustainable, <laughs> you know, and how do we recreate ecology and ecosystems in the way that we live as humans? Because I don't think we're going to get by certainly our lives, our lifespan will be okay. But for future generations, I hope that, that we can all become a bit wiser and start making better decisions. I'm not confident that that will happen, but 
I, I hope that conversations like this will will be catalysts for that sort of thing. And 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 your conversation with Joe, I think, will be a catalyst for that. But my goodness, we need to think about the way that we interact with ecosystems on this planet, and we need to we need to just get, stop using these freaking chemicals because we cannot escape them. Many of them are persistent. The last thing I'll say before we wrap up is that I do think that if you are worried about persistent organic pollutants, that that you know well raised fish that would be wild you know, fish that are low in metals and, and know your answer there and well-raised land animals, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised animals is the answer. So many times I hear people on the plant-based side get, you know, get up in arms and say that persistent organic pollutants accumulate in animal fat. And, and that's the reason to eat good quality animals. And I think that it's very clear that if the animals you are eating and the fat from the animals you are eating are from animals that are raised well on land that is not full of old DDT or other things, those are going to be much better than animals that are fed grains. And, and that's the best we can do as humans. And I think that that's where we should source our meat and our organs from. And we should support farms that are doing this type of regenerative agriculture and we should make sure we get this nose to tail nutrition in our lives. But um, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? I, I love how it kind of had, we went into the science, but we also got to talk a little philosophy. I don't do that so much. So it's, it's fun for me to think bigger picture because I don't know how we all do this from here. Well, I completely agree with your conclusion. And, you know, it was my motivation to go into ecotoxicology because I could use my science to do something about pollution and these problems. And I'm sure your motivation to go into medicine was similarly on the medical side of finding ways to, to be um, not symptomatic all the time, but dealing with the root causes of things. I'll just say in terms of your last comment that I feel very lucky because I grew up in Alaska. I grew up eating wild-caught salmon and halibut. I, I grew up eating a lot of game meat, um, which the, the game we're eating up there, it's things like moose and, and caribou and doll sheep. It's really low in contaminants. They're, they're obviously, they're all eating the forage natural forage in the natural environment, some of the healthiest meat you can get in the world. And also my family had a small organic farm where we raised our own animals. And so I kind of grew up with your diet in a way without knowing it. Um, we, we ate plants too, but it was hard to get fresh produce in Alaska. We grew our own um, potatoes and carrots and cabbage and things like that. The crops, peas, car uh, tomatoes, things you can grow in Alaska. Uh, but generally, we'd, we'd have them all summer and a little bit into the fall, and then we'd run out. And, and the rest of the year, we could only get canned food back then. We didn't have fresh produce available when I was young uh, in the way that you do now. So, um, But I, I think I grew up basically on your diet. It was quite, <laughs> quite a healthy diet. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, I think that it's I, – I, I think that I, I'm, I'm grateful for your work too, and I think that anyone who is trying to find the root cause is is – somebody that's fighting the good fight. And so thanks for your work. And I hope that our paths cross in person sometime soon. Maybe all three of us can have a steak with Bill. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get Bill and Frank and I can have a steak with you guys, but thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find more of your work? Their book is called the chemical age. I recommend it to everyone. It's excellent, but where can people find more of your work or get in touch with you if they want to connect? Sure. So, um, I, I can be reached on email, frankfonhippel at gmail.com. Um, also, my podcast is called the Science History Podcast. If you Google it, it'll pop right up. And um, I'm happy to talk to people about these issues. And I do a lot of public outreach around contaminants in society. I do a lot of public speaking, that kind of thing. I'm always happy to engage. Thank you again, my friend. And I, like I said, I, I hope that we get to go to Alaska or hang out in person soon. Let's do it. All right, you guys. Hope you enjoyed that episode. 
This was an interesting one with Frank. So after we recorded the first podcast, I actually went back to him and said, hey, can we record a little more about malaria? Because I was so interested in malaria being caused by railroads and human intervention causing standing water and then perchlorates that I wanted to add even more discussion of these important issues that you guys could benefit from. So that was a really cool thing that Frank did. And like I said in the intro, to me it just seems that the cult of the seed, that moving to agriculture was one of the worst mistakes we've ever made as humans. We disrupted our ecosystem. We stepped out of the forest. We stopped hunting and gathering. We overpopulated the planet, and we are really suffering because of this, sadly, as humans. I'm not quite sure where we go in reverse, but I'm pretty sure we don't get more agrarian. And I'm pretty sure the answer is regenerative agriculture, which is why I'm so proud to support farms in New Zealand that make our supplements for heart and soil at heartandsoil.co, as well as White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com, and Belcampo, belcampo belcampo.com, who are in the regenerative space. And I also love the folks at Rome Ranch and Force of Nature Meats, and I think they are all doing good work. I think that the first step we can go in reverse here is by recreating ecosystems and by increasing the the carbon comparing the carbon carrying capacity of the soil and the water carrying capacity of the soil. So did you know that for every 1% of carbon that is sequestered into the soil, you can hold 20,000 more gallons of water per acre, which means there's so much less runoff and the aquifers are fuller and the really the soil is just full of water instead of the water being in puddles, being in standing locations that will lead to mosquitoes and disease. And anyway, the whole thing is a mess when we start destroying soils with monocrop agriculture. I can see it happening at Rome Ranch. I can see it happening at White Oak, which is, uh, you know, 20 plus years into the process. Rome Ranch is much younger, but it's cool to see it longitudinally. So do not sleep on regenerative agriculture. If there is one hope for humans moving forward, this, I believe, is it in a big, big big way. So please support those things if you care about the persistence of homo sapiens on this planet. If you don't, you know, do what you got to do. But uh, if you care about your children's children's children being alive, which is a real possibility that they may be in dire straits, regenerative agriculture, soil health is something that is crucial to know about. So enjoyed my time at Rome Ranch. Thank you to them. Thank you to Force of Nature. Got to hunt, got a deer, ate some of the most red liver I've ever seen and really enjoyed that experience out there. Can't wait to go back. Uh, I'm going to Puerto Rico over uh, the new year with my team from Hard and Soil. We're going to get in the water and surf. It's going to be a great time. And then I continue to look forward to some mountain adventures in January, as well as a trip to Africa for three weeks in February. Going to visit the Hadza, hopefully the Chaga, the Datoga, the Blacksmith, and many other tribes. So I can't wait. A lot of exciting things in store for me. A lot of exciting things happening at Heart and Soil. We are trying to get all the stuff back in stock. Um, 2021 is going to be our year. Mark my words. So hope you guys are doing good. You can always email me, drpaul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co if you have questions about product recommendations or how to construct a nose-to-tail diet. I cannot be your doctor. I cannot read your labs on that. That's just not going to work. But I'm happy to help in other ways that are more appropriate. So... With that, go to hardensoil.co, subscribe to our newsletter. Every Sunday, I will talk about science and what's going on with me, what's on my mind, 
what's going on in the podcast, all kinds of good things. Look for a controversial thoughts episode this Friday on dairy. Who's it for? What is colostrum? What is all this stuff? Um, do I like dairy? Do I not like dairy? What are the pros and the cons? What is A1 versus A2 milk? That'll be on Friday of this week. Love you all. You are a part of the remembering. I think that as humans, we've we've lost touch with nature. We've lost touch with ecosystems, and we need to get back to that. If we don't have wilderness, we will not feel whole either. So it's all really connected. The food we eat is connected with how we live as humans. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for helping me spread this message. Thank you for leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe you'll get a free signed copy of my book. I'll announce the winner to that in early January for December. I announced the winner last week for November. And we'll keep rolling there. So stay radical, you guys. Talk to you soon. <laughs>